All right. Yeah, last message. Such such a rich book, and um, so glad we studied it. I, I was talking to Cheryl, our, our children's pastor, and she was like, I'm kind of glad we're done with it. It's like such a downer. Can we talk more about Jesus? And uh, so we're going to probably be going off to the Gospel of John, for those of you who uh, are interested in that. That'll be, probably be our next book. Chapter 24 in 2 Samuel is kind of strange. This book ends with the census, and it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But let me just read the first several verses, and, and we'll, we'll dig into this. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, so the northernmost of the kingdom to the southernmost, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of the Lord uh, the king still see it. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? So Joab doesn't understand why David's wanting this census to be taken but he orders it nevertheless. Verse 4, But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from... I love these Old Testament names. That, and from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad and on to Jazur. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites, and they came to Dan. And from Dan they went around to Sidon and came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. And they went out to the Negeb of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there are 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and men of Judah were 500,000. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. David realized that he had sinned. He realized the sinfulness in taking a census and that there's a consequence to this sin, carrying on in verse 11. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, These things I offer you, choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land, or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you, or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. Lots of questions probably going on in your head, right? Like, why would a census be sinful? Several explanations as to why this is sinful, which I'll share with you. Um, I'm sure there's more than these three I'm going to share with you. You can look up more commentaries for yourself, but these are the, the most common ones. Um, the one that I think it is, I don't think a lot of you are going to like, but that's the one I think it is, and I'm going to share that one with you anyway. But the first explanation is based off of Exodus chapter 30, verse 12. It reads this, When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each of you shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. 
The thinking is that David didn't pay this when the census was taken, and it would be kind of weird that he did because this was kind of more of a one-time requirement that doesn't have any precedence after this was given as an instruction to Moses in Exodus 30. So this doesn't seem likely, and so another explanation lies in the motivation as to why David took this census, that in his self-sufficiency and in his self-reliance, he was taking this inventory of how large his army was so that he can then plan on military conquests in the future. Another thought is that this one's closely related to the second one I just shared with you. It's based off of 1 Chronicles chapter 27, verses 23 and 24. It reads this. David did not count those 20 years of age, for the Lord had promised to make Israel as many as the stars of heaven. Joab the son of Zeruiah began to count but did not finish, yet wrath came upon Israel for this, and the number was not entered in the chronicles of King David. That David wanted to know the future of his military capability, and rather than trusting in God's promise that God will multiply Israel to the number of the stars in the sky. He takes matters into his own hand, and instead of having faith in God's promise that he would do this, that he is trying to do this himself and plan this out. Those are the main explanations, and here comes the one that some of you might not like. Some of you, like me, like this explanation. All that I can ascertain from this chapter with certainty is that a census was taken. Everyone can agree on that. The other thing that I think we can all agree on is that it tells us that whatever David did in this census taken was sinful. We don't know why, but we're just told that it was sinful. And we're explicitly told that it's sinful because he repents. He wants to repent of all this, and the prophet Gad tells him this. And so... I'm okay with all of this stuff that's happening in terms of saying this was a census that was sinful. I don't have to be told why. I don't have to be told why it's sinful. Now, I'm not saying that that is a right explanation for everyone and that everyone needs to think this way, but for me personally, it just doesn't matter why it's sinful. As long as the Lord says it's sinful, I'm, I'm good. He said it is, therefore it is. Now, the scripture says it's sinful. That's enough. Now, I don't need to know why, and some of you might like that simplicity, and some of you absolutely hate this, because you need to know why. Personally, I'm good with it, and for those of you who are not, you can continue to wrestle with these scriptures and deal with it with God. And maybe something more is needing to be dealt with within yourself, and we'll get into that in a few minutes. Let's dig a little bit deeper here into these first nine verses. David gives an order to take a census. Verse 2, Joab questions it. Verse 3, David orders it anyway. Verse 4, and then Joab does as he's commanded. Verses 5 through 9. And you're, you might be thinking, well, you're skipping verse 1 because that's the toughest verse. Let's go back to verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And here's where people automatically go. It's the second part. He, God, incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. And so if God incited David, how can God hold David responsible if he was the one who incited David? Now this is a very, very real question, and again, some of you are not going to like my explanation. 
just like the first one. Because for me, simplicity is key, and I just don't care. It doesn't matter to me that if God says it, I'm good with it. And I know that I'm not like everybody else. Some people don't like this. But the thing is, is that second part of that sentence, the second part of that verse, is just simply not the main point of the verse. What's the main point of that verse? The main point of the verse is the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. That's the main point. It's about God. So before we even look at that second part, you kind of have to look at this first part and think, well, there's this mysterious wrath that God has against Israel. And again, we're not told exactly what it is. And so it goes back to that question of, are you okay with that? Or do you have to know why about everything? What we do read from this scripture is that God used David's sin as a vehicle of his wrath upon Israel. And so people's question is, well, why was God angry? Again, I can give you a bunch of reasons, but you're not going to like the one that I kind of land on. One of the possible reasons is that Israel had not faced the justice for rejecting David as king when they received Absalom as king. Like, they, they haven't paid that price yet. That they, in essence, have rejected the Lord's covenant. And so this is a plausible explanation of God's anger and his wrath, but we're not explicitly told that that is why. Now back to not knowing why. Some of you are very good with it. You don't have to know why. God said it and that's it. Fine. Now if not knowing why something is sinful even when it is written as sinful in the scriptures, if not knowing exactly why God has to justify his anger and that wrath bothers you, if these sorts of things bother you, those why questions bother you, if you cannot be content to accept the mystery of the text, maybe there is something within yourself that is very telling of your relationship with God. Because if you are upset over the scriptures and what they tell us that what is sinful and that God is angry and it doesn't tell us why, but you still question why, then are you really then just saying that you don't trust God? That you don't think him to be a gracious God, a merciful God, a loving God? Because there are mysteries to God. There are some things that you just don't have answers to. Do we believe that Almighty God, Creator God, owes us explanations for everything? And so then I need to point us to pride. That perhaps there is a pride in us that we expect these sorts of things, that we come before God assuming that He has to explain Himself to us. Who are we? Who are we? To approach an omniscient, omnipotent, omnibenevolent, omnipresent God with such arrogance, with such conceit, rather than humble worship. 
that you are indeed creator, that you are indeed omnibenevolent, omnipresent, omnipotent, yet you are all that, that how can you and I possibly be angry with a God who isn't completely transparent with us? Because he's not. There's so much mystery about God. How can that be? That can't you and I live in worship with the mysteriousness of God? Because that partly is what drives us to worship, isn't it? Like if you knew everything about God, what is there to worship? And, and we obviously already do this. That's part of what draws us into worship is this mystery of God, that God is so much greater than we could ever imagine, that there is so much evil in the world, yet we can see so much love. There is so much tragedy and war and all these things, yet we can see these images of peace. And we just look at even our physical world today, that there is so much mystery today that we're still trying to figure out and that we, we didn't even know 50 years ago. That there's all this mystery unfolding before us today just in like science and technology and that we're just figuring all these things out. Now imagine, imagine God who has known all of that that we are discovering and we will discover, but he's known that for all time. He knows our today. He knows our future since the beginning of time. And we're getting these snippets as our generations pass, but God already has all of it. And so what's mysterious to us is not mysterious to him at all. And so those explanations that we're needing, maybe we get those later. But he already has them. This is no surprise to him. And so when we're not given explanations as to why, something is sinful, or why something happens. Do we doubt that God is good, that he's loving, just, merciful, generous, gracious? And so the bigger question really isn't about God. It is about you and me and how we view God and our relationship with God. And so David confesses this sin before God and he begs for forgiveness, verse 10. Gad comes along to David and gives him three options, verses 11 and 12. Three years of famine, three months running from the enemies, or three days of plague. Choose. And David is really wise. Verse 14, I leave it in the hand of God. And I, I couldn't even make a right decision about doing a census or not. Like, who am I to make a decision? I leave it to God. Verse 15, it's the three days of plague, 70,000 casualties from this plague. Pretty high number if you're considering the total of Judah and of the kingdom. But then again, David knew God was a merciful God. Verse 14, then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. And so David was right about God's mercy, that God's wrath is wrapped in mercy. Continuing on to verse 16, and when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord 
relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough, now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aravna, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, behold, I have sinned, I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aravna, the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And so David knows the wrath and the mercy of the Lord. He's already experienced this a few times. Think back to when he had that adulterous affair with Bathsheba and she's bearing their child and then loses that child because of this sin. Second Samuel chapter 12, verse 22, he says this, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? And so he knows the mercifulness of the Lord. He knows the graciousness, but he also knows the wrath of God. And look at this example here when he was cursed by Shimei, when he was running out of the kingdom because Absalom was coming in to take over the kingdom. Reads this in 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse 12. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. And so he realizes God is merciful, but there's also this wrath side. And so I don't know which one it is. But David experiences the wrath of God who knows at the same time that God is merciful. He knows that the hand that delivers wrath is also the hand that delivers salvation. And David knows God so well that in these darkest of times, he knows, you know what? There is no better place for me to be than in the hand of God. So even though I have this wrath and these three choices, I leave it to the hand of God. I know I'm going to face the wrath of God because of the sinfulness that I've done, but he knows best and he's merciful, so I leave it to God. And the mercy of God is not a divine exception. The mercy of God is his divine character. That is who God is. And even when David is faced with God's wrath, he knows that God is also merciful. That even in his sinfulness, that God has a mercifulness to him. Verse 20. And when Aravna looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Aravna went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Aravna said, why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Aravna said to David, let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Aravna gives to the king, and Aravna said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Aravna, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver, and David built an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea of the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. Back to verse 16, that's where God showed mercy. He relented. God then instructs David to build this altar at Aravna's threshing floor. In verse 18, David obeys. In verse 19, now this altar implies that sacrifices are to be offered there, which means things are not resolved yet. Yes, verse 16, 
he has relented, that that wrath is no longer there, but that doesn't mean that the wrath has stopped because the wrath is not satisfied. It is not propitiated. It is not atoned for until verse 25. Do you see where I'm going with this? When Aravna sees David and asks him, why are you here? David is there to buy the threshing floor for the sacrifices because there's a connection between the sacrifices and the relenting of God's wrath. Aravna offered to give it to David for free. Just take it. But David says, nope, I'm going to pay full price. And so David offers up these burnt offerings, these peace offerings, and then things changed. That is when God answered his prayers. And it is in God's mercy that he restrained his wrath. He relented, verse 16, that God provided a way to remove his wrath with an atoning sacrifice, a propitiation, verses 21 and 25, which brings us to this question. Do we really appreciate what it means to have a God-provided, God-directed atonement? Because so many times people have asked me, why does there have to be a sacrifice? Why did Jesus have to die? Because our sin deserves the wrath of God. Some of you may be looking at this census thing, like, what's the big deal? Why is that sinful? And it's the same things that we are dealing with today, in that the things that God has said is a sin. And there will be a facing of the wrath of God. And you're questioning, well, why is that sin? Back to my, where I've landed. Because God said so. That's good enough for me. I, I don't need an explanation beyond that. And some of you may need that, and, and you need to explore that and, and deal with that with God. But it's the same thing we deal with all the time. Why do we need Christ? Because our sin deserves a divine wrath. And so then God provides us an altar of this wrath where that can be quenched and that our guilt and that our sin can be atoned for because he is a merciful God that directs us and then he provides for us. That is how good of a God we have. That he says... You are going to face a divine wrath, but I am going to provide for you the ability to have this relent and to have you forgiven. And that's what leads us to this altar in Golgotha. The place of the skulls where Jesus is crucified. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. And Aravna's threshing floor is actually not too far from Golgotha where God's wrath was let loose. On Jesus. Mark chapter 15 starting in verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice. Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani. Which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That altar where our Lord Jesus Christ was sacrificed. Who became the propitiation for our sins. Who was the atonement of our sin and our guilt is at that altar. And when Jesus cried out in the darkness because of the judgment and because of God's forsakenness, we were provided a forgiveness in Jesus. We were atoned. 
and we were directed to Jesus for this atonement. And this is the news that we have to share with the world. This is the gospel message that we have to share with the world, that yes, you are going to face the wrath of God because of sin, because of sometimes you don't even know why it is. It's a census. I don't know why, but God said it was. But this is the way you're forgiven. This is the way that he saves you. And he directs us to his merciful hands. And that is where we discover how great God's mercy is. That he didn't just say like this is wrong and that you're going to pay. But this is wrong and I'm going to give you a way out. This is how I'll save you. I apologize if you were expecting more in terms of an explanation. I don't have it. But like I told you, I guess personally speaking, I'm very okay with omniscient, omnipotent, omnibenevolent, omnipresent God telling me something and not explaining it to me. I'm okay with that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, thank you for that wrestling and thank you for that struggle um, and for the people that need to know the why, the people that need to know the, the full transparency between you and them. I pray, Lord, that that wrestling and that um, sparring continues. Uh, Lord, you are long-suffering. Lord, you are patient. You are all-loving. You are not threatened by these questions. You're not threatened by what people think. And you've wired us all in different ways. And I pray, Lord, that they come to a satisfactory answer. But in no question at all, Lord, there's a mysteriousness about you. There was a mysteriousness before Jesus Christ died on the cross to all those Jewish people looking for a Messiah. And so many things were answered after your death, after your resurrection, and a lot of the mysteriousness of the scriptures were unfolded. And perhaps that's where we're at today in before your return. That so many questions that we have and so many value and belief judgments that we are making today, even though in your scriptures things seem to be pretty clear in terms of what is a sin and, and yet we're not told why and, and, and why you do certain things and we're not told why, but yet perhaps all of that mysteriousness unfolded upon your return. And we eagerly wait for that, God, because we, we are just, there's a lot of questions. And yet all those questions, may our faith not move away from knowing that you are so gracious, so merciful, loving, just, that you are a good God, that may that not blind us to who you really are. Jesus' name, amen. For those of you who have communion elements, let's take that out. And if you don't, just hold up your hand and we can get some communion elements over to you. Uh, during this time, um, if any of you are wanting prayer, uh, Susanna is in the right front pew uh, for you to come up and pray. And, and Justin will be at the left front pew for him to pray with you as well. Let's first take out the bread symbolizing the broken body of Christ for us.
Yes, we all face a divine wrath. But we're all given a divine mercy at the same time. And as a God-directed path of salvation, there's a God's provision also in Jesus Christ. His body broken for us to be the propitiation, to be our substitute, to be our sacrifice, to be our atonement. We take this in Jesus' name. Fruit of the vine symbolizing the spilled blood of Christ, so costly of life, to redeem us, to forgive us, to atone us of our own sins, our own guilt, worthy of the wrath of God. Take this until his return that he has promised us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for these elements, this sacrament that you've instructed us to take until your return. And so, Lord, we eagerly await for that. We prayerfully await for that. And in the meantime, Lord, that we would be witnesses of your grace, of your love, of your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.